This episode is brought to you by Graybar. Graybar is a trusted and leading North American distributor of electrical, communications, data networking, and industrial products that supports projects of any industry. Construction, hospitals, industrial plants, schooling, and more. Yep, Graybar does that. Graybar operates with one clear mission, to serve as the vital link in the supply chain, adding value for customers and suppliers with innovative solutions and services. But here's what makes them different from the competition. Being able to effectively navigate supply chains to get products on-site and on-time is crucial these days. And Graybar's nationwide logistics network, with over 290 locations across the country, assists owners and professionals build and maintain the operations in their electrical, communications, and industrial world by providing them what they need, when and where they need it, and within budget. Yep, Graybar does that. To view more information on their services, head to graybar.com. That's G-R-A-Y-B-A-R.com. Yep, Graybar does that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As we speak, I'm in my 38th year of being self-employed, but when my business was bigger, I needed Indeed. Frankly, because I wasn't all that good at finding and hiring the right candidates. But by leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. So ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with the right candidates faster. And... Golf Smarter listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Golf Smarter. Please visit Indeed.com slash Golf Smarter right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed here. That's Indeed.com slash Golf Smarter. Terms and conditions apply. Do you need to hire? You need Indeed. So if you take a round green and you put the pin in the middle of the green, I would say that the best place to miss that typically, because greens typically slope from back to front. For a right-handed golfer, the best place to miss is short right, because it's gonna leave you an uphill right to left putt. The worst place to miss, even if you're on the green, would be long and left, because now you're gonna have a downhill left to right putt, which is typically more difficult for most people to make a downhill left to right putt than an uphill right to left putt. So we would call the short right quadrant. If we broke it into four quadrants, we'd call that the green zone down in the right and the red zone up into the back left. And then you might have a yellow zone, short left or long and right. Better to have a right to left putt coming down the hill than left to right for right-handers. So what we do is we teach a golf swing and a way to set up our gear so that when we miss a shot, our miss is typically gonna be short right and not long left. Hi, this is former tour player John Erickson from AdvancedBallStriking.com. Today, I'm talking with Fred on Golf Smarter number 862. Great ball striking is only effective if you understand how to play a golf course with John Erickson. This is Golf Smarter, sharing stories, tips, and insights from great golf minds to help you lower your score and raise your golf IQ. Here's your host, Fred Green. Welcome back to the Golf Smarter Podcast, John. Hi, Fred. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it, it has been a while. I was looking back, and because you wrote to me and said, yeah, we did this before in your studio. I'm like, we did? Oh, okay. Well, oh, well, that's because it was just about 10 years ago that we yeah, did this. Yeah, that's right. I, but, you know, 500 episodes later, it's hard for me to remember my middle name, let alone who was on the show. So, I can imagine. but it, it was, it was great having you on. You were, you were John Lag Erickson at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, People still call me that sometimes as my old handle. You know, I, I was the first internet golf instructor in the world online. I was the first uh, online yeah. golf instructor. 
how do you know that for a fact? Because I can well, say because nobody was doing podcast. it. I mean, in 2009, nobody was teaching golf online. It didn't exist. People thought I was absolutely crazy. Like, what do you mean you're teaching golf online? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I was the first one to do it. I was the first one that, you know, that had any kind of a, you know, a course that you could sign up for and take and, you know, teach like, like you would go to school. You know, you'd, yeah, nobody, nobody was doing it. I was the first. Absolutely. That's absolutely amazing. And that you can say, yeah, no, nobody was doing. It. So there wasn't video at the time, right? There, was, what were, what were you <clears> doing? No, there was, you there was video. Like, People would send uh, content. Yeah, we had we had classes of content. There would be an instruction video. It would be sent to the student. They would do the drills. They'd do the exercises. They'd send back a video and say, "Am I doing it correctly?" And I'd say, "No, you're not." And then you do this, and there was a lot of back and forth. And then once they graduated from the first module or class, they would move to the second. And there were a total of nine kind of biomechanical swing modules that teach the swing, kind of breaking it down into sections like you would if you were teaching music. You know, you would learn chords first. You know, you'd learn this chord, weird, awkward hand positions and things. And then you'd learn scales that would move between the chords. So golf swings, it's no different. Here's a setup, there's a backswing, there's a top, there's a transition, there's a downswing, there's a load. You know, there's a, <clears throat> a force through the strike, there's a a finish and there's, you know, a way to go about doing things. And, um, and it, amazingly, it's been incredibly successful. But what's really fascinating is that having 10 years of, of data, basically, now we look back and we can see how much people have really improved. And, you know, we've had students that have been, you know, 12 handicaps that are now like scratch. Wow. You wow. know, we had a junior, a junior player that was, he was, I think, maybe eight years old. And he's now 20, so he's an eight-year-old kid, and now he's a plus four. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Getting yeah, ready to was, turn pro. Yeah, but you know? he, was, he was an eight-year-old. So yeah, he was eight years old. Then, yeah. Started then and then being an obsessive golfer from that point on, you're going you're gonna to be good. You're going to get better. <clears throat> yeah, but, you, you know, know, to be we, thinking we about, about turning pro and stuff, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, it's pretty, pretty, pretty impressive, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, so I'm curious uh, if, if you're going to take credit for being the first golf instructor on the internet. Um, yeah. <laughs> what what has changed more, the internet or golf instruction? Wow, that's a good. That's a great question. I'd say they both have changed radically. I mean, you know, I remember we talked about ten years ago. You know, I was really kind of uh, harping on the state of the game. You know, how much golf itself had changed the courses had changed the gear you know the way that the, the game is played yeah you know? yeah and as a matter of fact the, the episode that we did uh, was uh episode 386 you talked about the the title of the show was how uh the current equipment was hurting your game yeah well the clubs are too light you know so mm -hmm. people they accelerate too quickly from the top because they can you mm -hmm. know you're going to try and get down the ball as fast as you can to generate speed that's just natural right but when the clubs are heavier, you can still try and get down there quickly, but it's it's harder to accelerate something that's heavy. I mean, that's just kind of common sense, right? Right. So the heavier something is, the harder it is to accelerate. You want to hold shaft flex into the strike. That's that's the goal. That's the, the great the great strikers. That's what they would do. Well, then, and it's not who, about distance; it's about acceleration. So there's a difference. Yeah. So with all the advancements and changes that the manufacturers are making on a regular basis um, and all the R and D that it's put into all these clubs, if you're saying that the clubs are too light, why are they getting lighter? Well, because it's hurting people, us? well, because people want to hit the ball farther, right? So <clears throat> there's, I want to hit the ball straighter. I'm, okay. I'm maybe I'm yeah. unique. Yeah. If you want to hit the ball straighter, then you'd be better to swing heavier clubs and work on accelerating through the strike because that way you can feel the club. You can feel what's happening with the club face and the club head through the strike. <clears throat> if the club head is too light, then you over-accelerate. As soon as you acceleration reaches zero, in other words, the club is no longer accelerating, then you lose the feel in your hands. It's just kind of a guess as you're going through the strike. You, don't, you can't feel the club face anymore. So you have to keep pressuring the shaft to the strike. That's that's the only way to hit the ball straight consistently. If but you're not doing am I that, wrong? Am I wrong in thinking that I'd rather have less dispersion than more distance? Because everyone wants more distance, I know, but they're they're hitting the ball 
all over the map. Yeah, no, you want to hit the ball straight. Um, the key to the key to playing great golf is hitting the ball an adequate distance, but straight. Th think of it this way: how many how many times in a round of golf are you trying to hit the ball as far as possible? I mean, right. certainly not putting, right? Nope. Not chipping, nope. not wedge nope. shots, not nope. any of your approach shots. Nope. Okay, so none of the par threes, you don't want to hit it as far as possible. So we're only talking about... <clears throat> Ten shots? We're talking maybe? about the par fives, maybe four tee shots, and then some of the long par fours. So let's throw in, certainly not... Every par four, you have 10 par fours typically on a par 72, right? Right. And then you would have, so the par fives, you have 14. And of those, not every par four are you going to want to hit it as far as possible because you're going to hit it through the dog legs. Right? Right. So let's just say 10. Let's say 10 okay. times around, you're trying to hit it as far as possible. But most of the emphasis and marketing and everything on golf is about those 10 shots. But if you shoot... 72, let's say you're a scratch golfer. Well, I don't know, scratches, I don't even know what scratch is. And people shoot 75 and they say they're scratch. But when I was growing up, scratch meant, you know, you're a par shooter. So let's say you shoot 72. What about the other 62 shots? <laughs> right? Maximum distance is, is not important. You're trying to hit the ball straight, but also a specific distance. 62 times, a specific distance. So I think people are, <clears throat> you know, they've been kind of led astray a little bit, right? I mean, like, let's hit it far. But, you know, when I, when I was playing on tour, you know, it was a different game. I mean, we get into that. But basically the courses were narrower. You had to hit it straight. I mean, if you, if you weren't hitting 75 80% of your fairways, you were missing cuts and, not, not, you know, you weren't going to be, wow. you know, <laughs> not – you know, I was playing in a lot in Australia and Canada and some of the states here, but you know, courses were narrow, rough was high. You didn't want to be hitting it in the rough. You know, hitting it in the rough was kind of about a half a shot penalty, I'd say. You know, if you were in the rough, it was you usually weren't getting it on the green. So you get it near the green and get up and down half the time. Maybe you get it on the green once in a while. But it was a penalty. But I remembered you know, quite a few years ago, I think when Rory won the U.S. Open, was that at Congressional? Is my remembering that right? But I think that was, but he was making birdies from the rough in a U.S. Open. Like he made like three birdies from the rough, you know, and I'm like, that's not what I remembered the U.S. Or the U.S. Amateur for that matter. When I, I played in three U.S. Amateurs, made the quarterfinals once. Um, if you were in the rough, forget it, you know. I mean, I beat Billy Andre at six and five in the U.S. Amateur one year because he was in the rough. I mean, he was a better player than I was, but he had a bad day with his driver. He was hitting it all over the place, and I was in the fairway, and he was in the rough. I won the match. Mm. Was a, you know, that's, so, that's the way it was. Uh, uh, so, so then the question uh, about golf course conditions and golf course maintenance, uh, has that significantly changed over the year? Has the rough become less of a penalty? Well, I think on tour – they, rough, they don't grow the rough as high as they used to. I mean, you look at the major championships. I mean, some spots, maybe they grow it up a little bit. But, you know, I was there when Tom Watson chipped in on uh, to win the U.S. Open, you know, on 17 at Pebble. You know, and I was a kid, you know, I don't know, Did eight you? years old or whatever I was. I was there, you know. I, I saw it. You saw it? Yeah. And, oh. you know, the rough was like wow. up over his ankles, you know. We're talking like, you know, eight-inch rough around the greens there and stuff. I mean, um, you know, there's a – Classic picture of Ben Hogan, you know, when his foot slipped and he hit it in the left rough at Olympic Club on the 18th. And there's a picture of him, you know, wedging it out of the rough. And it looks like he's swinging through a hay bale. Like, you know, he's got, <laughs> you know, like two pounds of hay on his club as he's going, just pitching it back into the fairway. I mean, we don't see that kind of stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, they're, they're doing that for whatever reason they want to do. They, they like to see lower scores. They don't want to embarrass the pros. You know, no, that's fine. But it's just different is my point. It's just different. But for wow. your average golfer, not everybody is playing, you know, 7,400-yard golf courses. Like the golf course you live on, it's probably, what, 6,600 yards or something? I I don't play it that much. But, yeah, I, I live yeah, here, but a, I'm know, not a Marin, member. Marine Country Club, yeah. I'm not a member. <clears throat> but it's, a, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's a 7,000-yard course. A lot of 
a lot yeah. of amateur golfers actually play tougher golf courses, in my opinion, than the pros do. Because what's tougher? Something, a, a wide fairway or a narrow fairway? I mean, narrow fairway is tougher. <laughs> I mean, it is. No question. There's no question, right? Yeah. So if they're trying to make the courses tougher for the pros, they would make the fairways narrower, not wider. But when you watch the, the tour these days, the fairways are wide. Most of the courses don't have many trees because it's not good for television cameras, you know? Uh -huh. So... Uh -huh. This, the whole stadium golf thing, you know, and Pete Dye was involved in making a lot of those courses, PJ this, PJ that, national, whatever. And, and the, so they weren't putting trees as much on a few strategic trees here and there. But for the most part, it's not the parkland tree line courses that they used to play. But uh, my point is that your average golfer still plays a lot of those tree line narrow courses. And they would be doing themselves a great favor to learn how to hit the ball straight. Um I'll give you an example. When I was playing in college, this would have been in the early 80s, and uh, I was playing college at the time Corey Pavin was playing in college. I was a freshman. He was a senior. And uh, I was playing number one man at Fresno State, and I got paired with Corey Pavin a bunch of times. And Corey Pavin literally hit the ball 225 yards off the tee with his driver. And he won, I think, seven college tournaments that year. Collegiate player of the year, just dominated. Hitting the ball 225 yards with a driver. We played the Stanford tournament, and I remember there were two par fours he couldn't even reach. He couldn't, he had to hit driver forward short of the green, but you know what? He would, if the pin was back left, he would lay up short right to open up his pitch shot so that he could pitch it up there and make his par on a hole that he couldn't reach in two. And he would do that every time, most every time. And I remember him shooting 66 at Stanford, hitting it 225 off the tee. You know, it was just incredible. To me, that is a lot more impressive than somebody overpowering the course, having a good day with the driver, landing it in the fairway most of the time, and wedging into the, all the holes and making shooting 66. Corey Pavin's hitting long irons and forwards and coming in, you know, and shooting 66. It just, it was the most incredible thing, really. And wow. that's kind of a style of golf that doesn't really exist, you know, at the professional level much anymore. But my point is that to the amateur golfer, they would do themselves a favor getting control of the golf ball. <laughs> get it straight. Get it in the fairway. You'd be surprised if you go out there and you don't miss any fairways and you knock it on the green 80% of the time from, you know, if it's reachable for you. Yeah, you're going to get pretty good at this game pretty fast. So I think you're right. Learn to hit it straight. And then, it, and the dis, and the distance will come. Mm. Hey, listen, we're going to take a time out, and we'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by Modern Mammals at modernmammals.com, where you get 10% off when you use the code GOLFSMARTER. Now, if you were to ask me what my greatest asset was, you may be surprised that I wouldn't take more than a blink of an eye to tell you that it was my hair. Every barber I've had in my life raves about my hair. And even today, I get jealous comments because I still have a full head of healthy hair. Well, that's why I'm so happy that we have Modern Mammals showing their support for the Golf Smarter community. Modern Mammals' goal is to keep your hair and head natural. That means they don't distort your pH balance and natural oils like normal shampoos would. And unlike shampoos, the products from Modern Mammals don't have harsh detergents that suds up and dry out your hair and head. And unlike conditioners, they don't leave your hair limp and frizzy. Instead, they lightly clean your hair and scalp, cleansing hair while protecting its strength and texture. And their products are designed to make your hair feel thicker. So go to modernmammals.com and use the code GOLFSMARTER. It's one word, GOLFSMARTER, for 10% off. That's modernmammals.com. And use that GOLFSMARTER checkout code for 10% so they know that we sent you. And there's a link in our show notes to go directly to the Golf Smarter landing page. Modernmammals.com. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. 
change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware. You know, talking about the the golf course that I live on here, Marin Country Club, and, and I'm not a member of, I got to say, because there's so many great public courses locally that I don't need to invest in that. And, you know, somebody recently told me, you know, we joined it because some of some people approached my, this woman was telling me some approached my husband and said, listen, if you love gambling, drinking and golf, you've got to join this club. And I looked at her and went, okay, well, I'm one out of three, (laughs) you know? So yeah, but, but I interviewed a woman who was playing in the, uh, the women's U S open qualifier that happened here at Marine country club. And she told me this is one of the narrowest golf courses she's ever played, which is why it was so tough for her. You know, the rough's not that thick, but it's there and it's in play a lot. Well, think if they grew the rough thick on that course. Okay. And they probably did for that qualifier. Yeah. And, and I think the greens are pretty small out there from what I remember looking out your back of your house or when I was up there, I, I remember the small greens. And so extending upon that idea that a narrower fairway is more difficult than a wide fairway, a smaller green is more difficult than a big green. Right? Yep. Yep. So the old style courses, you know, that a lot of the generally, I mean, I'm not talking about the, the Lynx courses in Scotland, but in the, in the United States, the parkland courses were typically narrow and small greens. And if you look at all the old courses around the Bay Area, that's kind of they're all kind of like that. Everything from, you know, Richmond Country Club to the Olympic Club, California Club, um, <clears throat> the Meadow Club, right? You know, the the yeah, older uh, John's John's tracks. making reference to these John's making reference to these golf courses that are here in Northern California because he also lives in Northern California. So, to those of you who are listening in uh, in Canada right now or in Australia. Use your imagination. <laughs> yeah, just look around wherever you live. Find out the courses that were built in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and, and they're typically going to be narrow and smaller greens. And smaller greens are also mm-hmm. easier to maintain. You know, there's not as much to mow, right? It's easier for the greenskeeper to keep control of the situation when the greens are smaller. Shorter courses are, you know, it's less fertilizer, less water, you know, it makes sense to me. I don't. I never really understood why golf had to go from sixty-eight hundred yard U.S. Open type course to you know seventy-four or seventy-five hundred yards or more. I mean, the ball's going fifteen percent farther than it used to. So a sixty-nine hundred yard U.S. Open course would have to. You add fifteen percent to that, you come out right around eight thousand. So, relatively speaking, I mean. You know, the, the classic golf course would be, of your 10 par fours, you're going to have three or four short iron approaches, three or four mid iron approaches, and three or four long iron approaches. Mm-hmm. So you had to use all the clubs. Like, you know, I still carry a two iron, you know, two, three, four, wow. just the old sets. Well, that means I, that's how I grew up playing. I actually carry a one iron, too, but I used wow. to drive because I like to hit it straight off the tee. But the idea was that, you know, you would have to be challenged using all of the clubs in your bag, evenly distributed, long irons, mid irons, short irons. It's just common sense. It's just how the game was set up. The ball went 250 yards off the tee. A 500-yard par five was uh, maybe reachable in two shots. If you busted one out there 260 and you had a 240-yard three wood that you tried to come into that small green surrounded by bunkers. It's like, should I go for the green and, or, you know, risk all the trouble around the green or do I just lay up short of the bunkers and pitch up there and try and make my birdie that way? You know, par fives, you know, were three shot holes. Like, you know, when I won on the Canadian tour in 91, I shot 17 under par, shot the tournament record. Mm. And I was never on a par five and two the entire week. So all the birdies that I made were, there were no two-putt birdies. I didn't get any free birdies by hitting a driver five-iron two-putt. Hey, I made a birdie. No, I had to make all those birdies. There were all the approach shots, you know. So I'm just saying, you know, the game has changed in that way. 
I mean, I was never under 30 putts in a round, and I shot 17 under par. I mean, you don't see anything like that anymore. I'm just saying, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I'm just saying the game has changed. You know, it, it's a different yeah. style of, of play. It's a different kind of a game than it, than it was. Yeah, no, but please toot. If that makes sense. I, I would love for you to toot your own horn. I love these stories. <laughs> well, I love these stories. But, you know, it's interesting because I think of, you know, playing courses that have large greens – and my playing partner, I will be very excited. Oh, I'm, I'm on in regulation and then three putt because even though you're on a large green in two, you still are really far from the hole most of the time. Yeah. Right? So you're now you're in three putt territory. Yeah, that's true. But I, I would typically rather be on the green than in a bunker. Sure. You know, I'll take a, I'll take a hundred foot putt than be you know, short-sighted in a sand trap or something or, or over the green. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, you know, another thing I've been, you know, one of the things we work with our students a lot is we, we try and teach them how to play golf and how to move the, the probabilities uh, in, into their favor. Like <clears throat> there's something I call the, a pie chart. Okay. So if you take a round green and you put the pin in the middle of the green, then I would say that the best place to miss that typically, because greens typically slope from back to front, right? So, you know, either going up. So the, the for a right-handed golfer, the best place to miss is short right, because it's going to leave you an uphill right to left putt. Okay, does that make sense? Yes. The, the worst place to miss would, would, even if you're on the green, would be long and left, because now you're going to have a downhill left to right putt which is typically more difficult for most people to make a downhill left to right putt than an uphill right to left putt. So we would call the, the short right quadrant, if we broke it into four quadrants, we'd call that the, the green zone down in the right and the red zone up into the, the, the back left. And then you might have a you know a yellow zone, short left or long and right. Better to have a right to left putt coming down the hill than left to right for right-handers. So what we do is we teach a golf swing and a way to set up our gear so that when we miss a shot, our miss is typically going to be short right and not long left. And this would be maybe one of the slight criticisms I would have of Mac O'Grady, for instance. You know, a tremendous ball striker and teacher. But the people that have played with Mac know that his miss tends to be long and left because of the way he swings the club, okay? And there's a reason for it, and I could explain what that is. And he, I don't know whether he would admit to it or not, but basically he moves his right arm down towards his right hip pocket on the downswing from the top, a straightening of the right arm, and then turns level with the shoulders. But what happens is sometimes his right arm doesn't get as quite as straightened out as quickly as he wants. So he ends up coming slightly over the top. I'm not saying he's coming over the top missing the green. I'm just saying that his ball is landing a little bit, even if it's 15 feet left of the hole, it goes slightly long because he's also accelerating the club so aggressively that he ends up long and left and having to putt down the hill. Now, is that one of the reasons that he putts left-handed? I don't know, but it might be. It's a question that only he would answer and he probably wouldn't answer. <laughs> and he probably wouldn't like that question being thrown at him either. But, you know, I'm not trying to call him out. I'm just saying I've, I've watched him enough, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when I was playing. I'd go out and watch, you know, Mac, the golfing machine, you know, and Morad and all that. And I was also very interested in, the, you know, the deep dive into swing mechanics and stuff. And so um, it's you know, a tremendous striker. Great. But that would, tends to be his miss. Now, mm -hmm. if you take someone like Curtis Strange, his miss would tend to be short right. Okay, so even though his his circle of dispersion pattern might be wider than Mac O'Grady, I'm just giving this as an example because Mac's a great striker, he might have a tighter dispersion. In other words, his circle might be smaller and Curtis Strange's is larger if he hits 100 golf balls. But Curtis Strange's is down in the, in the green zone. Even if he's missing the green, he's chipping from short right chipping up the hill and right to left where somebody like Mac might be long and left or if he misses a green long and left that's usually the worst place to miss a green yeah. I lost a tournament I lost the TRJ event in 2012 because I missed a green long and left I was in the left rough 
I hit it through a dog leg and I tried to draw the ball into a left back left pin placement and I overcooked it and I went over the green left and I was I made double bogey from back there. And I lost the shot to Brad Hughes by I lost the tournament by a shot to Brad Hughes by one shot. Amazing. Because of that hole. You know, when I think back to that round. Yeah. You know. Well, let's bring it back if I can to amateur golf. And I and I again I love these stories. I love hearing the details. Yeah, no of more these of these stories. stories. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not saying no more of these stories. I just need to no, just... you know think about, you know, um, you know, I I've I've become uh, well, as my index would indicate, uh, I've become a better player than I was last time we saw each other. And, uh, but I'm still consider myself a struggling golfer, as I'm sure even the best We're players in the world. We're all struggling golfers. All yeah, of us exactly. are struggling golfers. Believe exactly. Me. But um, I, I think about when I pull out my rangefinder and I look through the scope and the pin is 138 yards away. And I'm like, okay, I need to get it to 138 yards. Well, really? Now, you know, what you just said makes so much sense to me of being, want to be low right of that pin, because if I hit it, my, my, oh, I have a 135 yard club. I should just hit that. Then I may cook it and end up back left of the green. And now I've got a, a downhill putt that's going in a direction that I'd rather not go. I don't like going inside out on the putts. I like going outside in, uh, you know, on, and that's what it'll give me on that uphill putt from the bottom, right. Right. So are we like taking that number too seriously and we're not calculating exactly well, okay, if it's 138 yards, I don't really want a 138 yard shot. I want 130 yard shot type of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it makes sense. Um, what what I teach and what I do is to set up my clubs and my gear specifically so that my miss will tend to fall short right. So if I swing flatter lie angles um, and stiffer shafts and most importantly, removing offset off my clubs. Okay. So those three things are going to help me to get that ball a little bit short right when I miss hit it. So if I hit it perfect, I'm right at the stick. And if I miss it a little bit, oop, I'm a little bit short right, but I got an uphill putt right mm-hmm. to left for birdie. You mm-hmm. know? So you set up your gear that way. And you know, you, by having clubs like that, it's going to affect the way you swing the club too, right? If, you're, if your lie angles are flatter, you're going to tend to swing it more around your body because it's flatter. It just kind of makes sense. If it's more upright, you're going to swing it up over your head or your shoulders. So if you come you know, move this way with your shoulder and your hand, if your hands are up high, then it tends to send the club on a steeper plane, which is more likely to send the ball long and left because you're also de-lofting the club also because you're coming from the outside and you're coming down and de-lofting it. So the mist can often be long and left. And that's what, you know, hackers pulling the ball and that sort of thing, right? That That's very common. So what we do is we teach the students to Use an old style swing, really. I mean, you know, I, I really think that the best ball striking was back in the 1950s and 60s. You know? Whoa, hold that thought because I'm going to grill you on that one because uh, <laughs> we need to take another time out and we'll okay. be back right after this. The best ball striking was the 1950s and 60s? I think so because the courses were set up narrower. Uh, the mm-hmm. greens were smaller. It required players to hit the ball straighter. So I'm not talking about distance. You know, I'm, I'm obviously the players hit the ball much farther now than they than they ever have. That that you know isn't to be disputed. But when I'm talking about ball striking, I'm talking about accuracy. I'm talking about shaping the ball. The the, the it's no mystery that the spin rates were much higher on the old Bellotta golf balls, which allowed the good players to curve the ball more. So you could really move the shape the ball um when i was playing i would think through my shot not just about getting the ball onto the green but what the ball was going to do once it hit the green so in other words if the pin was front left behind a bunker i would bring it in from the right and then try and draw it and spin the ball on the green so that it would spin back into the front left part of the green so I'm thinking about my shot shape into the green and then what the ball's doing once it hits the green because we had much higher spin rates with the blotter golf balls. Same thing if, 
people that shoot pool and that sort of thing, you know, they talk about, you know, putting English on the ball and spinning it around and that sort of thing. And a lot of that's been, not all of it, but a lot of it's been taken, taken out of the game, you know? Yeah. So that, um, it helps the, the not, not so good players because they don't want the spin. The spin sends them two fairways over on a bad shot. Right. But yep. for a good player yep. that's controlling the ball, we want the spin. We want to be able to shape the ball. We would always, play the spinniest ball that we could find, like the Titleist, uh, Bellotta, or 384s. Or, um, in, in my era, uh, we always would play the spinniest ball we could find. Nobody was winning tournaments Didn't with top that. flights and solid core balls and stuff like that. That Nobody ever won a tournament using a top flight or a pinnacle that I know of. I mean, you just, you would, you were giving up too much <laughs> if you're doing that. Yeah, but were you guys getting paid to play balls too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and would, and if you got approached by Top Flight with, to play their ball with no. cash incentives, would you like? Mm, sorry, I'm not going to play that no. ball. No, no, because you're trying to win tournaments. You know. Yeah. I mean, the amount of money that we were getting. You know, when I was playing, I mean, you know, you'd, if I was playing up in Canada for the season or the summer, you know, they might pay you five or ten grand or something. You know what I mean? Not a yeah, hundred thousand okay. or a million. You know? <laughs> or, I don't know. Or, Maybe or if twenty they million paid me just a million. Show up. <laughs> yeah, isn't that just, what they're doing on this new golf tour now? Just pay to show sure up. They're getting paid to show up, but you know, I, but I, isn't that just kind of like I, other I, sports too? Yeah, I, I mean, Tiger you know, basketball. I heard Tiger said the other day, "What's the incentive to practice? If I'm going to make this much money with just showing up, why? What's the incentive?" Well, that, I mean, that, ask, that ask Steph, Steph Curry that or something, right? I mean, yeah, right. basketball players, I mean, they, they get paid and yeah. they get paid even if they're injured. But I think they're still motivated because the, the human humans have a competitive spirit. Yeah, you, you especially want to win. at that level. Yeah, you want to win. I, I don't have a problem with the way that, that this new tour is set up as far as guys being paid. It's just like contract. Hey, do you want to come and play in our league? You're, we'll pay you this amount. It's the same thing as basketball, football baseball you know you sign a contract i mean a lot of there have been a lot of baseball players that have signed multi-year deals and they get stunk up the joint (laughs) you know i mean it's just that's more the model for professional sports right it's more like that than it is the golf model is an unusual model that if you miss the cut you make nothing Right. That's kind of weird, really, if you think about it. Hey, I'm on this tour. I missed the four cuts in a row, and I made I made zero for the month. You know, guys sleeping in their cars and all that. I I grew up in that era. I mean, I can't say I didn't sleep in a car once in a while too. When you know, trying to save some money or something. You know. Wow. Yeah, you know, it was wow. it was fun. We all had a good time though, and nobody's complaining about it. Yeah, that's well, we, you know, we talked about the old days versus today, the differences, and that's probably a, a huge part of it as well. You know, plus, it, you know, if you're not making the cuts, you're not getting endorsement deals. So there's a lot more money involved, right? Um, yeah. Although, you know, you're coming, out, uh, you're coming out of junior golf, you're coming out of college golf with uh, some reputation, you're going to make some money as soon as you announce that you're a pro. But um, it's interesting because what it seems what we're talking about and I know your website is advancedballstriking.com and you talk right. a lot about ball striking and that, but it seems like what we've been talking about this entire time is playing golf, not hitting a golf ball. Yeah. Well, you learn. There's uh, a big difference. I did an interview um, recently with uh, Carl Morris, I believe the sports psychologist sure. over in the UK. Sure. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that I point that I made about the mental game is one of the best things you can do to help your mental game is to have a great golf swing. <laughs> it really helps. <laughs> it really helps. Yeah, it really does. You know, <clears throat> so working on your technique, um, helps. And one of the things that we teach, uh, in the, in our hitting method, we use a, like I would call a hitting, hitting method. Um, with in a hitting method, we would teach that the body would be more muscularly contracted and firm. Okay, so in other words, we would have a, a cohesive tension through our body from our shoulders, our abdominal cavity, and our legs, and everything, and our arms, and even our grip firm on the club, but with the suppleness in the wrist, which is another skill set that we teach how to do both: how to have a suppleness in the wrist, but a firmness in the fingers. 
and mm. we have drills and exercises to teach that. But what, what happens is that when you get nervous, what you do, what most people do, including myself, is you tend to tighten up. Yep. So when people get under pressure, they choke because they're trying to use a golf swing that's based upon uh, relaxation, where everything is, is relaxed and loose and that sort of thing. But when they get nervous, they tighten up, and then that golf swing doesn't work anymore because then now the club's releasing in a different spot because of the tension on the downswing. So what we teach is a golf swing where you actually engage the, the, the muscles in the body, contract the muscles, so that you can swing aggressively. And when you get nervous, you just tighten up, but you're, that's how you swing anyway. So it doesn't really affect you. And I put this to the test when I was on tour because I used to be one of those swingers that was all loose in the body and all that. And that's what I was taught from the golfing machine. And I found that it wasn't really working, you know, under pressure the way that I wanted it to. Um, it's kind of, I always think of the difference between like Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino. So when I was growing up, Jack Nicholas had the great concentration. You know, he's the great concentrator. And he made golf look difficult. You know, he made it look, it was great concentration over every shot where Lee Trevino would just step up, pap, 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 tap it behind the ball three times, boom, 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 and send it on its way. You know, half talking to some, Hey, okay, blah, 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 boom, 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 you know, I mean, he made it look easy. But what I saw with Lee was that cohesive body tension, a short accelerating strike, you know, cohesive body tension and striking through it aggressively. And Jack had the more, you know, relaxed with the upright swing and a lot of concentration. So, you know, I think, Jack being able to win like he did, becoming the greatest player of all time, is really a tribute to his great mental prowess, really. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> I think I never wanted golf to be that difficult looking. I just <laughs> want to st- step up and hit. I don't like to take a lot of time over it. You know, what, what's your shot? What are you trying to do? You're trying to draw it, fade it, you know, hit it low, high. Um, it's all about trajectory you know controlling deciding on the trajectory like for me i don't i don't really use yardages in the traditional sense i think about more uh what club i'm going to use for trajectory so if i'm 160 yards i want to hit it in there low i'll hit a like a four iron but if i want to hit it in there high i hit an eight iron so it gives me a bunch of different clubs like i never just pull a club based upon yardage never well again we're back to playing golf not ball striking You know, yeah. is, but that's is, part of ball striking, right? We teach we teach his methods, right? We teach how to to do these things, and so yardages are. It, it's good to know. I, I'm the first guy. I want to know roughly what I'm. You know, my there's a 150 marker, or whatever. I'm yeah, 170 yards, and I look at it and I say, okay, my kind of looks a little longer than 170. The wind's blowing a little bit. I, I, the yardages are all out. No more yardages. I'm just trying to feel what kind of shot I'm going to hit in there. Is the wind? blowing left to right? Am I going to draw the ball into the wind? That's going to take something off it. You know, what's the humidity? What's the temperatures or elevation change? There's just too many things to consider based upon a yardage. It, it's, it, it's very overrated. It's, it's good to know. Yes. But to make that your final decision, absolutely. I'm 165 yards and I know that this six iron is the club to hit. No, I don't think that's so good. Okay. We're back to playing golf. <laughs> That's what we do. Not not striking a golf ball or right. making a golf swing, you know, is hitting the ball the ultimate uh, goal here, or is having a great golf swing uh, or a fluid golf swing? And, and and let me let me bring up another topic that has been just forefront of my mind and my conversations lately, and that is, and you kind of alluded to a little bit of it, where Jack is focus, focus, focus. What? Are you, let's just do you, what are you thinking about during your golf swing? Or are, are you internally um, focused or are you externally focused? Are you thinking about your hands position, your arms, your legs? Or are you thinking about, you're shaking no. your head, I'm just going to stop talking and let you go. No, <laughs> I mean, the only, thing, the only thing that I'm thinking about is hitting it solid. That's it. Making good contact. Do you not think time? about body parts? No, no, no. I mean, I have a grooved golf swing. I know I have my golf swing. It's, yeah, right. No what about the rest so, of us and so, your students? Yeah, yeah. we groove. That's why we do thousands of repetitions and, and train the body to, to do what it needs to do and put everything into our advantage from the way that we swing the club, the way we move the club, to the, to the way we set up our clubs, 
to move the probabilities in our favor and not to work against us, but to move in our favor. So as far as hitting the hitting a shot, I decide on the shot that I'm going to hit. If it's going to be a, a low fade, well, I know what a low fade feels like at impact. So I just set up to the ball. I aim a little bit left, and I think of that strike through the shot of what a low, good contact hitting a low fade. And that's it. I just I try and create that feeling in my hands and my body as I'm going through the strike. That's the focus, like boom, through the strike, dish, right here, bam, bam, right? That's it. I don't think about anything else. I let, let my mind just, I don't give myself time to think about it. I get up pretty quick. I might take a while to figure out what I'm going to do with the shot, but then once I pull the club, I get over the ball, to send it on its way. And mm -hmm. I, I learned a lot from, you know, Mo Norman. I, I spent a lot of time with Mo in Canada. <clears throat> and one of the things Mo would do, he would do this all the time. He'd line up you know, six or seven, eight golf balls on the range, just one, two, three, four, just line them up in a row and just rapid fire. Two, three, four, five, six. It just, I mean, he'd have two balls in the air at the same time, sometimes three. Wow. You know? Wow. And, and just put it on like autopilot, kind of like a tennis player. You don't have time. I mean, what are you going to think about technique when the ball's coming at you? You don't have time to think about anything. You want to get your brain into that same kind of thing. Like the problem with golf is the fact that it is the ball is just sitting there on the ground and you do have all this time to think about it you know so you, right. it doesn't really work into our favor much so we we want to try and <clears throat> decide what we're going to do commit to it 110 percent, execute it the best you can try and make good contact with it and if you don't you, the hard part you just got to live with the results that's what it is you know what i mean right. it's and like the, that's it and the results i, I Yep, the results I have to yeah. deal with are commercials. And then we're going to take another break. But we're also <laughs> going to talk about what's on Golf Smarter Mulligans, which isn't your show, but yours will be coming up. But still, Golf Smarter Mulligans, what's happening this week? This week on Golf Smarter Mulligans, it's the first of two conversations with the incredible team from Vision 54. Our first is with Pia Nielsen, former coach for Annika Sorenstam. Anything that we need to think about, which could be, you know, what club to hit, where to aim, all of those decision-making things need to be done and completed before you step into the shot, I mean, period. <laughs> and so, just like you say, you need to get clear, you need to get the information about the decision, and then when you're committing to it and stepping into cutting or hitting the shot, you need to be present and connected to the target. If you have to be over the ball and you're still concerned about alignment or thinking about your swing, it's impossible to be consistently good. And most often players get too tight and tense in the bodies too, standing there too long. That's Golf Smarter Mulligans, number 178, in an episode we call Play Your Best Golf Now. This is the first of two conversations that I've been quoting ever since they happened back in 2011. Next week is her partner, Lynn Marriott. That's the best of Golf Smarter called Golf Smarter Mulligans from wherever you listen to this podcast. So I'm curious when you're when you're working with a student, and you know, as a longtime instructor, that every golfer, not we're not every golfer is going to become a scratch golfer. Some people, if they can, you know, break ninety, they're really ecstatic. Or they break eighty, they've made you know it's the happiest time in their life. Um, or even breaking a hundred. So. How do you, you know, help somebody, uh, or is it the way I guess I should ask this question is, can everybody reach their own potential? Not everybody has the potential of being a great golfer. It's reaching their own potential. Does that make well, sense? Well, I mean, are you saying reaching your own potential based upon your life condition? Like, you know, you have a job and a family and you only have so yeah, many hours can't, a day. Yeah, right, you, right. You said about hitting thousands of balls. You get it into yeah. the groove. You're, who's doing that, right? If you've got a wife, you, you've got a life, you've yeah. got a job, yeah. you've got kids. Hitting thousands of balls is... It's not realistic. It's not realistic, A. And B, if you're hitting thousands of balls without getting feedback from an instructor or an online instructor or something, you're probably doing it wrong anyway, and you're just grooving yeah. the wrong thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so what we do is we do more drills, like repetitions. We use impact bags and things like that. So somebody can come home from work, um, go in the backyard, work on something for 10 or 15 minutes and get in a couple hundred repetitions, you know, and you do that seven days a week, six days a week, you can really make some progress, you know? Yeah. So we do it more. I think actually hitting balls is kind of, kind of negative, you know, because every time really? you hit a, because every time you hit a golf ball, it's like, Oh, that didn't go right. Or, Oh, that didn't go right. Or that, you know, you start getting really worried about what the ball's doing and you get really ball bound. <laughs> I think doing the drills, swing drills where there's no ball and you're just working on kind of like the biomechanics of the swing, you know, you're working on specific ways that the body is moving you can train yourself. Um, <clears throat> we have all that stuff really covered. We, we set up a, a, a kind of a swing plane analyzer in the fourth module that basically shows we try and teach you, teach you how to hook your way in and cut your way out. Basically mm -hmm. you, you come in with a hook swing and you exit with a cut swing. And what that okay. does is that that tends to create a net zero. Okay. You hook your way in, cut your way out, you end up hitting straight shots. So we set up a little analyzer that anybody can do. Just a quick little trip to the hardware store, grab a couple PVC pipes and a couple of golf shafts, stick in the grass in the yard, whatever. We show how to position the camera and how to look at it so that you can check to see whether you're coming in under plane and exiting under plane on the other side. And once people start doing that, they start hitting the ball straight. <laughs> it's just pretty simple. You don't really have to go out and hit millions of golf balls. You get the, see, I, I view the golf swing as a motion that the body makes from start to finish, from the address to the top of the swing, down through the strike and into your finish. That's a one complete entire motion. doesn't matter whether a ball's there or not. Just forget about the ball. When I was on tour, one of the things I used to do is just um, take divots before I would play. <clears throat> and because focusing on taking divots, I was focusing on getting uh, good control of my low point. So I want all my divots to look the same. If I could take 10 divots, it all look the same. You know, and then I put a ball in the way perfect. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I don't need to hit a bunch of golf balls. So get my divots looking good. Uh, put a golf ball in the way. Boom. When I won the TRGA event in Las Vegas, uh, I won by seven shots and I, I hit one ball before each round one. Really? Yes. And I won the tournament by seven shots. Um, the reason I did that is I didn't need to hit any balls because I only need to hit I shouldn't say I need hit any. I need hit one ball. Okay, so I, I loosen <laughs> up. Wait, wait. Are you fibbing here? With I lied. I lied. No, I, I hit one ball. Okay. <laughs> so, gotcha. and the reason, all right, the reason is that you know when you go, let's say you, you go to the first tee and you haven't hit any balls or whatever, you, you hit it off to the right. You know, a mulligan, right? You want to hit it? Okay, let me hit another ball. Okay, that was a mulligan, right? So, what I would do is I'd go to the driving range. After I'm, I warm up. I mean, in other words, I stretch my body, I, you know, that sort of thing. And I take some practice swing and make take a few divots and that sort of thing. And then I, what's the first hole? Well, the first hole was a par five at the Las Vegas, uh, the old Sahara Country Club, Las Vegas National. It's a par five. And I'm going to hit driver. So I take a driver and I hit one ball and it kind of leaked to the right a little bit. And then that's it. So I go to the first tee knowing that that's kind of, my vibe today is maybe I'm not turning as hard as I'd like. So I know it's kind of like I'm taking that mulligan now as my first shot. Cause I already know what the first one did. So, <laughs> and then boom, I just, I make a correction because as soon as you rake over another golf ball, you're kind of, it's a conspiracy. Now you're conspiring to do something <laughs> because I hit the first one left or right or whatever. I'm going to try and correct what I just did. And usually hit the second one better, right? Everyone, you kind of hit the second one better, right? You hit a bat on off the first day. Hey, guys, can I take a mulligan? Yeah, yeah you right. almost always hit the second one better. The second all swing All-American. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I, what I did. Um, and, yeah, just knocked it down the middle after hitting one a little bit to the right on the range with the driver. And then now I'm down the fair. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do for my next shot into the green or, you know. So that, that works just fine. But I'm not saying don't loosen up. I'm not saying don't stretch, don't take some swings. I'm just saying I think hitting a bunch of golf balls can work against you before you play. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're hitting the ball really bad on the driving range. Okay, just terrible. And you go to the first tee. You're not going to be that positive, right? Right, right. Okay, now let's, let's take the other example. I'm hitting it great on the range. That. I'm hitting it great and on the range. 
and I tee up on the first hole. I got all this comp. I'm hitting it great. And I just kiped the thing off to the right off the first tee. And then I'm walking down the fair going, what Every the hell time. just happened? I was hitting it Every great on the range, right? <laughs> right. So what I like to do is show up to the first tee not having any idea how I'm going to hit it today. I don't want to know whether I'm hitting it good or I'm hitting it bad. I just want to get out on the course, and we'll find out how I'm hitting it on the course. Yeah, but it could be too late. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, and I found that that, that works uh, best for me. I'm not saying everyone should do that, but I just think there's a lesson to be learned there. I don't think you need to grind a whole bunch of golf balls before you play. Just take some shots, hit a few good ones. You know, don't worry about it. Don't fuss over it too much. Get well, loose. also, I think based on what we were talking about earlier, try to hit different shots with a club, right? <clears throat> you know, take out your eight iron, hit it high, hit it low, hit it short, hit it far. Yes. See what that feels like. Well, and as another that problem, you would recommend another. Absolutely. Yeah. And the reason like for me, practice is going out on a golf course late in the afternoon when nobody's around dropping four or five balls in the fairway, hitting them into different parts of the green, hitting different tee shots, hitting three balls off the tee, five balls, you know, hit them. I like to be on real conditions. The, uh, the driving range is, are they're, they're flat, right? Yeah. Golf courses are not flat, at least a lot of the ones I play. So if you're hitting off flat lines all the time, and, and then the, the wind direction is going to be usually constant when you're on the range. You're hitting, depending on the direction of the wind that day, on the range, it's blowing right to left or left to right or whatever. So you're just hitting into one constant wind condition off a flat lie. But then when you get on the golf course, none of that is happening. <laughs> you're now hitting off side hill wise and winds going all sorts of different directions. And you're hitting shot specific. You know, you're seeing narrow fairways. You're seeing small greens. The, the, the reality of the golf course is much different than the range. So I, I don't spend much oh, time on the driving range and, anymore. Yeah, and, and lately I've, re I've realized and I've noticed that when I'm hitting off of a grass driving range, I'm hitting off of sand most of the time. It's mostly sand. There's no dirt. The grass isn't thick. Like, Gone, you know, yeah. it's, uh, I don't know why, but um, my Amazon, what's her name? You know, Alex? She just answered my question. I didn't ask you any questions. Sorry for the interruption. But yeah, <laughs> hitting, hitting grass um, on the golf course is always very different than hitting it. And I actually don't mind hitting off of mats on a driving range. I yeah, know. I don't. It's me. I don't. It's I don't me. really mind. A, I have a. I teach off my deck in my yard uh, on a mat, camp. right? Well, no, just off the wood. Uh, just hit right off the wood. Off I have, wood. I've got IPE, really hard Brazilian hardwood. It's a super hard. You can't. Wow. It's, yeah. So it, it forces you to get get aware of your low point really fast. You know, yeah. With that. Yeah, it's an excellent I have point. A, I, I have a mat also that and a net. So if we're going to, someone wants to hit a bunch of golf balls, I don't just fire, you know, thousands of golf balls down in the canyon behind us. Although I do pick them all up. The, goat, the goats come by and they, they mow all the grass down and we go down there and, and just pick them all up. And yeah, there'd be a few hundred balls down there. Usually I don't hit a lot of golf balls off the deck. You know, maybe I'll have a student hit a couple. We can watch ball flight, something, but I'm usually teaching more of the biomechanics of what they need to be doing. Anyone that comes to see me is pretty serious about wanting to improve. Their swing. I'm not, I'm not really a band-aid instructor that much. It's like, let's, let's really get you, teach you how to do it. You know, let's go back online. Now you, you mentioned modules. Mm -hmm. but t tell me about your your teaching modules online at advanced ball yeah so we'd have an yes yeah, yeah so we'd have an exercise so the first module would basically be uh striking an impact bag from what we call the 430 line so that's visually what we see from our eye we see the the club shaft coming out of the right hip pocket basically from the inside and then we use forearm rotation to <clears throat> rotate and come back square into the bag so we learned we learned to hit from there first right away and there's very specific protocols on where the club face is and the shaft and all that and and it's very all very well explained and then the second module would be uh ground pressures and engaging the cohesive body tensions in the body that i just talked about and we set those up right away so to make sure that we're feeling the right things in the body and the muscles are contracted so that if you move one part of your body that the other will move also because if it's relaxed like i could sit here and move my shoulder like this but my hip isn't moving at all. But if I have everything contracted, then everything's moving, right? So these are the kind of things that we teach in the second module. <clears throat> and then the third module, we work on going through the strike, where the hands go, 
uh, where the shoulders go. We typically like to teach a very level kind of rotation going through with the shoulders. Uh, but we need to have that coming from the inside on the downswing so that that counter counterbalances itself and working up into the finish and you know how the shaft plane works through that. <clears throat> and then the fourth module we work on um, analyzing our swing plane, flat entry, uh, steep exit, uh, low left and round and up. And there's a way that we go that. Then the fifth module is the hand attitudes, which I talked about, firm grip but a flexibility in the wrist. It's not easy to do. It takes some training to do that. So we work on that, and that helps set up for the transition. Then we go back to the top of the swing, and we showed you know some different backswing op options. Uh, you can take it outside, you can take it inside. It's very customizable. But the main thing is that we slightly flatten the shaft to transition. There's different ways of doing that. We address all those through the, the sixth module. Then the seventh module, we bring the whole thing together. We tie module six to module one. And then now you've got a biomechanical swing that's that should be working the club correctly through the strike. Uh, it's really you know very very simple once you understand understand it. It's not we don't teach a specific swing. There's a lot of uh, <clears throat> options for customizing, and people's swings are going to look unique. But we want the golf shaft doing the golf shaft and the club face to be doing this same thing through the strike for everybody pretty much. And then the uh, <clears throat> the eighth module. Then we talk about we start getting more into playing, like ball positioning, it, it, uh, whether the ball position is in the more forward, uh, a little bit in the center, more to the back, and how that affects the, the initial flight of the ball. The farther back the ball is, the more to the right the ball is going to start if we do things correctly. <clears throat> and then we can we learn how to how to aim and how to not be locked into like a specific you have to aim it directly at the target. We show all the options for aiming left of the target, aiming right of the target, and then and then varying that with ball position and getting control of the, of the low point, which we talked about. And then we move to the ninth module, which is about drawing and fading the ball. And we have very specific protocols for how to do that, all with post-impact intention. So in other words, we don't have to change our grip. We don't have to change our backswing. We don't have to change our downswing. We, do, we don't change anything. Uh, we can take the same swing, but what we change in the post-impact in, in, intentions will put a side spin on the ball slightly, a little bit, left or right, or right to left. So if we find that we're lined up slightly to the right of the target, it's not a big deal because we just draw the ball back to the target. So we don't really have to worry about being that precise lining up. Oh, you're lining up here, you're lining up there. Don't really have to worry about it. I can aim way left of the target, and I could, you know, come in from the inside of the back ball position and hit a fairly straight shot with maybe just a little baby fade at the target. So, you know, that that's why, you know, watching Lee Trevino growing up as a kid, you know, I used to love watching him play because he was so quick to he was so quick to set up to the golf ball. I mean, he would just get over the ball, take one look, boom, send it on its way. Like, how could anyone have that kind of precision with their alignment and their feet and everything, right? Because he knew that it didn't really matter. He got over it. He looked at the target, knew where it was. If he was a little bit too far left or whatever, he'd just send the ball on its way and, and, and shape the ball to the target. Hmm. So he didn't really have to worry about, oh, I'm five yards left or eight yards left or whatever. It didn't really matter. It's a game of feel, right? So you have to be able to feel these things. So we teach this. We, we're very strict in the training, but then once you kind of graduate from this, it's like you have a golf swing that you can now take to the golf course and you just feel your way around the course. You know, there's not a lot of rules out there. You're going to go out there and hit the ball to where you want to hit it. You know, and, and it's been, right. it's been really, but really good. You, yeah. you used an important word there and that was graduate. And you got, it takes a while to graduate so you can get to the feel part of it. Yeah, I, I, I would say I most of our I don't even student, know if I'm there. Yeah, most of our students, uh, our, our course is about, about a year and a half of instruction. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that should, sense. you know, get, get you through. Um, if same thing, you know, I'm a musician also, I play guitar, I play jazz drums a little bit too, play in a band, uh, other things I'm doing. And that's all the same kind guy. of thing. It's the same kind of thing. You know, you have to practice, <laughs> you know, yeah. you have to learn, learn these techniques, you know, especially drumming there, there's such a, a correlation between golf and drumming that I found, you know, the timing, timing, timing of things and the technique, like, when I, I when I first way. learned how to play drums, I was doing everything with my arms. And then I took uh, instruction from a jazz 
uh, teacher and he said, no, no, you do everything in the fingers. You have a fulcrum here and then these back fingers control the bounce of the stick as it's coming off the head. And it's like, who, who had this much time to think about these things, you know, to figure yeah. this out? But that's how those guys are like super fast. are doing it all on their fingers. It's more like they're typing. They're not hitting it with the shoulder and stuff, right? Right, right. So, so people in golf, it's the same thing. You learn the more advanced techniques and then it becomes a lot easier. You're like, oh, gee, I didn't think of that. That's, that's you know, that's a better way to do it. Yeah, it's interesting because I played drums as a kid um, and didn't start golf until much later in life. And yeah, we joke about, yeah. yeah, we joke about how we, when you start things as a kid, you don't think about it. It's just kind of a natural motion. And so there's a tremendous amount of rhythm in my head, drum rhythm in my head that even though I haven't played in over 50 years, I still have that inside of me that I use out on the golf course and it makes a huge difference for me. Yeah. Yeah. It really helps. Uh, most, <clears throat> most musicians that I know will say that it, it, it's good to spend some time on the drums, even if you're a guitar player, a bassist or yeah. anything, horn player, whatever, just to develop a sense of timing, timing and feel. You know, it's just really, I have really a nephew good. who's a professional drummer and he and I have a language that he so appreciates the fact that I could speak to him in that language, even though he's never seen me play. Um, but I, I, I understand what he's doing and I make comments about nuance that he does. He's like, wow, you saw that? Like, and it just <clears throat> makes him so happy that somebody noticed, somebody in the family noticed and maybe the only one. Technique, you right? Know, John? Technique. Technique. It, yeah. uh, I apologize for not having you back on the show in such a long time. And I hope that <laughs> it, it doesn't happen again. This is so entertaining. And I love when you tell stories like this about people you played with and things that you've witnessed. Um, it's, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming back on the Golf Smart. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, we'll look forward to doing this again sometime, maybe within the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> So on my last round before I went on vacation, I experienced something that even my playing partners say they've never seen before. Uh, we're at teeing off at number 10 at Rooster Run, and it's a par 5, and I hit my drive pretty well. But it landed in the rough just left of the fairway, but within reach of getting there in two, because on this day, there was a front flag on the green at about 195 yards. But about five yards in front of me, and just to the left, was the 200-yard marker, a plastic blue pole standing about 30 inches high. It wasn't even in my line of sight, so not a problem to even think about it. I set up with my hybrid and hit it cleanly. But then the pole exploded in pieces with the ball cutting a little bit to the left through a tree and over the fence for my penalty. We're all going, wait a minute, where's the ball? I, I, we heard the sound. No, do you, did you see that? Yeah, that pole exploded. Well, it ended up that I had to take a double bogey on that one for the day. But fortunately, I got those strokes back with two birdies before we finished. And one more bogey for a 37 on the back nine. Felt great. But the sound and vision of that pole blowing up was crazy. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for upcoming episodes, please click on that Hey Fred button at golfsmarter.com.